This is episode 216 of the Beyond the Food Show. And today we ask the question, are we overweight? And to discuss and answer this question, we have Alyssa Rumsey, registered dietitian. This is a hot episode. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going to Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dozier, clinical nutritionist and emotional eating expert, creator of the Going to Beyond the Food method and founder of the Going to Beyond the Food Academy corporate executive turned health expert with my own journey with weight, body image, and food, it's now my mission to help smart, successful women like you live confidently right now and unconditionally. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Hello, sisters. Welcome back. And this is the Weight Loss Series Part 3. I'm going to quickly recap where we've been and where we're going today and also what's in front of us. Now, let's all be grounded in the intention of this podcast series. This series is not intended to tell you what to do if you want to lose weight. Now, it's likely where perhaps some of you's minds are at when you saw the title. And I want to say this is totally normal. When we begin our journey of questioning diet culture, being introduced to intuitive eating and or body neutrality, there's a period of denial. There's a period of massive confusion. And that confusion comes from what we've been taught since like the age of five or six years old, that thinner is better. But we've come to a point in our life where we realize that our chase towards a smaller body has created all kinds of side effect and chaos in our life. And we don't want that anymore. Yet, we still think and firmly believe that thinner is better. So there's this period of confusion that leads to questioning everything we were thought and everything we're now being thought in this world of non-diet and intuitive eating. And for some of us, it's a shock. And we go through the spirit of questioning everything, a lot of back and forth, right? I don't want to lose weight, but I need to lose weight. <laughs> I don't want to lose weight, but I need to lose weight. I just went to my doctor and I got a weigh in and he or she told me that my BMI was at risk. Is that you? If it is, that's the intention of the weight loss podcast series is we touch the main question as expert that we see in our practice from you questioning where you've been and where you're going, but also for many of us where we've been personally. And I know for me, the BMI was a huge trigger. I remember vividly about nine years ago when I lost once more a lot of weight and I ended up being 180 pounds, wearing a size eight pants. And yet, when I went to my doctor, I was categorized as overweight. And I remember... <laughs> leaving this appointment, sitting in my car, I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, why can I not just be normal? I lost all this weight and my cholesterol got better and my blood pressure got better, yet I'm still not good enough. So the BMI story that we're going to talk about today comes from that place because I know a lot of you are going through the same thing. So let's recap a little bit here very quickly. The first two episodes, this is part three, we have two prior episodes. Show 212 was titled, But I Need to Lose Weight. And there we answer why we feel and think that we need to lose weight. And we answer the question, is the pursuit of weight loss helpful with our desire to lose weight. And we spent a lot of time about how to manage our healthcare team in regards to weight loss recommendation. Part two, show 214, we had a very extensive discussion with Chris Sandel on set point. 
Set point is that natural fat thermometer that every single human being has. This set point is what we believe to be how weight is regulated in one human being. It's literally the thermometer inside of you, what you don't control intentionally. You don't control your set point, but it does control your weight. So we talked about the set point theory, how to determine where you at with your set point, but also what should we do with regards to set point, or is there any way for us to control our weight? And today is all about the BMI. And our guest to discuss with me this topic is Alyssa Ramsey, a national recognized and award-winning registered dietitian, and she specializes in intuitive eating, body acceptance, and disordered eating recovery. And we have this beautiful conversation, me and her, and we're going to help you answer, if you are overweight, the history of the BMI, how to determine your health status, and the impact of weight stigma, which is what I described when I was sitting in my car after the doctor appointment, right? The shame that I felt for being categorized as overweight. That's what we call weight stigma. So we'll talk about that in the interview with Alyssa. So you ready, sister? Let's do this. Welcome into the show, Alyssa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm much looking forward to this interview with you because we're both working with women who have began their journey into the world of intuitive eating. And then we get the question, but I'm overweight. Yeah. Right. So that's the goal of the podcast today, Sue. So what does it mean to be overweight? So when, you know, we say the word overweight, so that was something that was co-opted by the medical community and overweight. When we think about overweight, it's like, okay, over what weight? And this really brings us to the BMI and the BMI measurement. So the BMI is a measurement just of like height overweight, like height compared to weight. And it was actually, and I only found this out a couple of years ago. And like, I've been a dietitian for 11 years and this is not something that we learned in, you know, any of our training, but the BMI was actually invented over 200 years ago by a Belgian mathematician. So like not a doctor, not a health professional of any kind. And he came up with the BMI just to be able to help the government allocate resources to the population of that country. So it was developed to measure populations, not to measure individuals. And it had nothing to do, as you can tell from that description, with how healthy or unhealthy someone was. And the guy who originally came up with that actually said this should not be used to measure health or to measure fatness or to measure weight. So, you know, I think that is the bottom line is the BMI when it was developed was never meant to be used in any way to assign health or to assess weight. So when, you know, going back to the terms overweight or, you know, also, you know, the term like obesity, which I usually use in quotes, you know, these are words that are used to describe larger bodies but they've been developed and co-opted by the medical community to really pathologize a person's body. Yeah, because when you think of it, we break down the word overweight. It means over some kind of designated place that you need to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's assuming that there's a correct weight that a body should be at. Yeah. And, and then we never say over height. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. There's not a height we should be at or a size of footwear we should have, yet there is a place of weight we need to be at. Mm -hmm. So though it was this very interesting history created 200 years ago, it is now being used today in both of our country, Canada and the U.S., as a health marker, would we say? Yeah, yeah, or a way, yeah, a way to, to gauge someone's healthfulness. So, you know, I have clients who go to the doctor and, like, every marker, like all their blood work is fine. Their blood pressure is fine. They have no measure of disease at all. But then the doctor will see their BMI and say like, well, oh, you have to lose weight for your health. Mm -hmm. Even though all their markers are of actual health are fine. You know, the health community is still using this measurement. And why do you think 
that is? I mean, it must be prescribed by insurance or is it something that is required professionally to do? Or is it literally a biases from the medical community? Ooh, okay. Well, that's a, that's a big question. That's okay. So I'd say all of those things. Perfect. So we'll leave the medical bias for a second. Yeah. And I don't know exactly how it is in Canada, but here in the US, yes, the BMI is baked into our insurance and like our healthcare system. And I know I don't accept insurance. However, I know a lot of dietitians who do, and they really, who practice from a health at every size perspective and a weight neutral perspective and don't ascribe to using BMI as a, a measurement, but like that's sometimes what's going to get their patients or their clients covered. So it is really tough. So, you know, we can talk about it for sure from an individual perspective, but it is something that like population level and from like a macro level that we do really need to change because it is, you know, we can only do so much when it is baked into our systems like that, you know, and then from a, a medical and like a health professional perspective, yeah, the training, I mean, it's, it's like I said, I've been dietitian for 11 years. This was, my training was all traditional, like weight normative perspective. So it was all about, you know, using BMI and using weight to assess health and recommending prescribing weight loss for health and all these things that I now know to be not true based on the research. But I think there is just such a large, I mean, it's, it's what people are trained in. And then so that bias is just kind of like baked into, I mean, it's baked into our society. And then it's definitely baked into, you know, the medical training and health professional training. Absolutely. And it's the same thing in Canada. So the reason why I ask this question is many times women will come back and say, it's my doctor says he doesn't have a choice, but to ask it's part of their quote to do oh, list, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. Whatever the beliefs are, they have, they being the doctor or the nurse practitioner, have to measure your weight because it's part of their assessment. Mm, okay, good question. I'm glad you, you mentioned yeah. this. So this is something, and there's actually, and I'm happy to, to reference these maybe for yeah. the show notes, but Reagan Chastain has some amazing resources on her website, Dances with Fat, mm -hmm. for this specifically. I give these to all my clients, and we talk about this when they're going to the doctor, because you have every right as an individual to refuse to be weighed and to ask to not be weighed. And a lot of times this is what people say. Well, my doctor told me they need to have this information for their notes, for insurance, et cetera. And again, I don't know exactly the regulations in Canada, but I know here in the U.S., actually what they need is just two forms of measurement. So this could be your height and your blood pressure or your heart rate or your temperature. They just need two things. So again, in most cases, there's some, you know, small number of cases where weight might be needed or your doctor may want to measure your weight. But, you know, there's very little reason both from the, you know, insurance coverage perspective, but also even from the medical perspective, most medications are not dosed based on weight. There are some, but most are not. So there is very little reason. And like I said, Reagan has some amazing materials on like how to, because it can be a really scary thing to talk about with your doctor and to like, try to like say that, you know, to the doctor or the nurse. But I will tell you that majority of my clients who have done this, their physician has like responded very well. It's like, okay. Or they've like had a conversation about it or whatever. The other alternative, if, you know, someone doesn't feel like ready to kind of like set that line and set that boundary, or if it's someone, unfortunately, a physician or health practitioner who just like, is like, no, I like refusing to let you out without getting on the scale is just doing a blind weight. So turning around and saying like, don't tell me my weight and kind of setting that boundary. But again, like here in the US from an insurance perspective, it's not required. That's very interesting, though, in a society where we judge people's health based on their weight, it is not a requirement. It becomes totally optional when you understand. I don't want to say you're right, but when you understand what you can ask for. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I mean, healthcare is such a, it's such this like cloudy thing. And we're just like, oh, the doctors are the expert. And, you know, that's what I always believed as well. And yes, doctors have a lot of training and they know a lot, but they don't know everything. And they also only know as much as their training, you know, allowed them to. And, and you know, that was the same for me as a dietitian. Like I, I was doing the same thing. I was asking for weights and diagnosing as, you know, quote, overweight or obese or, and 
it wasn't until I started learning more that and really digging into the research around BMI. And that's what's so fascinating is when you look at the research, it's just like, it's not, again, it's not a good indicator for health at all. Yeah. And and I'd like to get more into that topic because we've debunked a big myth within the first five minutes that BMI really is not a measure of health. But it's not just us both saying that it's actually science pushing that out. Like I was when I was preparing for this interview, I, I was reading a study from the UCLA team, a 2016 study published in the Journal of Obesity that looked at 40,000 people. Do you know which study I'm talking about? I think I do. Yeah. And they looked at 40,000 people and found that 47% of people that were classified as overweight by the BMI were actually healthy folks. Yeah. How can this be? Yeah, exactly. And that's been replicated in a lot of studies. And it's something that, again, because of the bias in the medical community, it's something that doesn't get a lot of airtime or they like explain away why that might be. I mean, that's the whole like the quote unquote, I don't know if you've read about or or heard about, there's a ton of research about this, the obesity paradox, which, and the only reason it's called a paradox is because they were expecting the opposite result. And so they're saying it's a paradox because like they don't understand and they think like something is, is wrong. But obesity paradox research is super fascinating too, because when you dig into that, what that shows is very similar to what, you know, you were saying, but it actually shows a protective effect of being in like a little bit of a higher BMI class. So it's saying that people who are quote, like in the overweight or like the lower numbers in the, like the obese BMI actually have a lower mortality, a lower rate of dying than people of a quote, normal BMI. Mm-hmm. And do we know why? Are you able to explain why that would be? I don't know if, you know, I think different studies have different kind of theories on it. I don't think we have like any mm-hmm. data that's like this why, but I think we can look at that in the study that you referenced where such a large percentage of people, they were actually, their health markers were fine. It's because using just the BMI is not a good way to measure health or measure rate of, of dying, you know, because you have, so all the diseases that we look at and think of like, oh, these are diseases that you get if you are quote, like overweight people in smaller bodies get those as well. And I think that's what it comes down to is like the bottom line is it's not your weight. That's going to have as big of effect on your health as it is behaviors as well as, you know, like behaviors around, you know, food, physical activity, stress management, but also your social means and, you know, your community, your, you know, the amount of money you have, like where you live, like all of these things affect, there's so many different like social determinants of health that is completely left out when we just look at the BMI. And I think in part it's because it's convenient for the medical world to only look at one metric to classify people. Yeah. Yeah, it is because you know, it's a quote, like easy way to be like, oh, well here, like I know what's going on. I know what to recommend. Because when we look at the social determinants of health, I mean, that is such a huge issue. And, you know, obviously I can't speak for all health professionals, but I know for me, the way I'm trained, like I'm trained to fix, Mm -hmm. I'm trained to see the problem and fix. And those are things that are not just like an easy snap your fingers fix. And it can feel like very overwhelming. So it's like, okay, well, what I know I can do is I know I can like recommend they make changes to their diet, they exercise more, you know, et cetera. And again, honestly, like in my training, the social determinants of health were not something that were ever talked about, yet that actually has, you know, I'm reading again, Linda Bacon's Body Respect book, which I love. It talks a lot about this in there. I actually really recommend that for your listeners if they're interested in diving more into this because it's written very well. It has the research, but it's written in a very like consumer-friendly way. Like her first book, Health at Every Size, was like a lot sort of denser. But Body Respect is a really great one that I recommend. And yeah, you know, you know, she's talking in there too about like how the social determinants of health matter so much more than like what we eat or how much we move or what our weight is. Can you give us a few examples of what social determinant is? Sure. So a big one is going to be 
how much money you have, basically. So like your ability to have access to healthcare, your ability to have access to like food. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of food insecurity or there's a lot of the, the food deserts where grocery stores and fresh food is like few and far between. And I mean, I just think if you think of like two examples, like you think of a family that does not have a lot of money and, you know, the parents are working like multiple jobs. So they're working, you know, say like 12 plus hours a day. And, you know, they don't have time to do a lot of the stuff that, you know, those of us that are privileged to be able to have the time, you know, whether it's like exercising, meditating, you know, all of this stuff like that. And also just like the chronic stress from that, from like constantly worrying about that and working really hard, you know, maybe they're living in an unsafe area. And it's like just that chronic stress, stress. which has such a big impact on our health. And I think that's something that's not talked about a lot, you know, versus someone from a more privileged background or privileged means that, you know, has a job, works, you know, normal hours, but has someone who's like, maybe they have someone cooking for them or they're getting like the meal delivery service or they're able to like do these other things and they don't have that chronic stress and chronic worry like the day to day. Yeah, that's huge. And I can also think of people that have been affected by trauma, right? We talk a lot on this podcast about trauma and yeah. the impact that it has. That's another quote, social determinant of how yes. you're going to engage with health, with food, with your body, because of what you're carrying in your nervous system. Yes, yes. Oh, my gosh, totally, totally. So I want to come back to the so that's one marker of health that really we don't have a scale for it's not a metric that we can put people on. And that's part of the problem is that mm -hmm. we can't like, rate you on that. It's not a targeted place, right? But we also have other health marker that actually can be measure that could be considered health marker. And that's what the study in the UCLA group did on those 40,000 people is they looked at other health marker like blood pressure, triglyceride, cholesterol, glucose, insulin resistance, and inflammation marker to determine health. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think those are really the big things, right? Like we've sort of talked about how weight and BMI is not actually a good indication of how healthy or unhealthy someone is. And yes, like the markers that you mentioned are really what's going to show us more about the health of an individual. So is that the way that we should frame health in our head? Like, get the fact that BMI is not our determinant of health, but how should we think about health then? I think that's one way. I think looking at those like physical markers, like you mentioned, like, you know, your cholesterol numbers, your blood pressure, the insulin resistance, that's one way, the physical health. But again, that only encapsulates one part of health. So if we look at health from, you know, that would be the physical yeah. part, but then also like the emotional part yeah. of health, you know, your mental health, psychological health, and then as well, sort of like financial health. So again, we talked about how income and like social status is a social determinant of health. So like your financial health is going to be big too. So I think there's not just, we tend to focus a lot on the physical health. And again, especially those of us trained in, in physical health, that is what we focus on because that is what we know. But there's so much more out there than that. And I remember a big turning point for me was hearing Christy Harrison speak. And she said, and it was just like, I'd sort of heard this before, but it was the way that she said it, that it just totally hit me, which is that weight stigma has a bigger impact on our health than food. Whoa, that's a big one. Yeah. And then, yeah, so that's really, again, like the stigma and the bias, like that has such a much bigger impact. So Yes, like the physical health and with our food behaviors and our physical activity behaviors, sure, that is that does contribute to health. But there's also so much more out there, too. So it's, you know, looking at those other social determinants of health. So like financial, education, you know, your social support, your coping skills, your access to health care. And a lot of this is like going to be more like macro level of needing improvements, too. It's a sum of so many factor health. It's not just yes. one thing. 
Right. But as human, we like to put things in the box, right? We like dichotomous thinking of black and white. It's like the whole, like I did a whole podcast on good and bad food, right? We want to know what the good food is and the bad food is because part of it is we don't have to think. We just want to be told what to do. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to health, it's very convenient. And we all have to acknowledge that to be classified. We don't like it, but it's convenient to be said, just do this one thing and you'll be healthy. Now we just broaden your scope to like, I don't know, 12, 15, 20 different factors for you to consider in your search for health. Yeah, that is such a good point. Yeah, I think, you know, we as humans, that's a lot of the work I do with my clients as well as getting out of that, like all or nothing black and white thinking. But yeah, because with something like the BMI, it does give us this thing like, okay, all I have to do Mm -hmm. is lose weight and get my BMI down and then I'm good. Yeah. Right. Like it's like feel like now we know that that's not for most people. That's not a long term attainable goal. But in the moment and given our society, it feels like it. And it feels like it's something that we can control. Yes. And I think that's like as humans, we we always want to feel like we are in control. And yes, with certain parts of our health, we are. But with a lot of other parts, we are not. Hmm. I think, and, and this is my own theory on that, I think dieting, the dieting behavior that most women carry their entire adult life contributes to reshaping the way that they think globally. Mm-hmm. Like not just with food and health, but with everything that we do in life, because we learn to think in a black and white, good and bad way with our diet. And then that way of thinking starts spreading through our entire life. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point. I do see that with a lot of the people I work with, too. Yes. So can you help us unpack weight stigma? Because to the question of the podcast, are you overweight? We've determined Mm -hmm. that there's no such overweight thing. Mm -hmm. However, being faced with BMI, being faced with the fact that we're classified as overweight contains what you call the weight stigma. And it Mm -hmm. has a lot of impact on our health. So can you help us explain what is weight stigma and the impact on our health? Sure. So weight stigma or weight bias, those are often used interchangeably, is this idea of someone, you know, judging someone and assuming something about them based on their weight. So the example before of someone who goes into the doctor, everything, all their markers are fine, but the doctor's like, well, no, you're not healthy because you're, you're overweight overweight in quotes with like the BMI. And, you know, what happens with that, you know, one of the ways that that results in impacting health is because of that, you know, I mean, you hear so many stories of this. If someone in a larger body goes into the doctor with like an ear infection and they're told to lose weight or they go in and they've broken their ankle and they're told to lose weight, like no matter what. And so those are traumas and like the repeated trauma of that, weight stigma results in people delaying or avoiding going to the doctor, Hmm. right? So just that right there, delaying or avoiding going to the doctor is going to potentially lead to poor health outcomes down the road. So that I think is one of the big things I think about when we talk about weight stigma impacting health is this delaying or avoidance of seeing a, a doctor. But the other part of it, you know, of these being like daily traumas and experiences, whether it's you know, just like the kind of constant stress of walking into a restaurant, not being sure if there's going to be a chair that you can fit in or like getting on an airplane, right? Or like going to a store and trying to find clothes. And, you know, these constant sort of like day after day, these little tiny traumas, little tiny stresses. And we talked before, chronic stress, really bad impact on our health over time. And so, you know, the sort of societal weight stigma and how our world is built, that's not, you know, a very accepting place for people in larger bodies, that causes a lot of stress day after day after day. And that stress then impacts our health and creates inflammation and raise our yes. blood sugar. Like once you start understanding yes. the biology of the human yes. and how we function, you then understand the impact of stress on so many other marker onto our body. Yes. Yes. So that again, when we like separate out, okay, it's not actually the weight that's causing 
you know, say to go with your example, the increase in blood sugar, right? It's the weight stigma that's causing the stress that then leads to the higher blood sugar and like maybe diabetes down the line. So it has nothing to do with actually the weight causing, you know, the high blood pressure, the diabetes, the heart disease, but it's all these other factors. And that's the other thing when we look at weight research, Yes, there is a correlation or an Mm. association between being at a higher weight and certain diseases, but none of that is saying that it's actually the weight that is causing those diseases. Causation versus correlation. Yes, exactly. And that is, for the average population, something that you're not conscious of. So for those that are just the average woman wanting to know if I'm overweight, that's something that you perhaps want to Google causation versus correlation. But for any practitioner listening right now, when you read study, that is one of the fundamental element of reading studies. If you don't understand this, then the entire study will make no sense and will lead you to wrong conclusion, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. the case with weight and health. Yes. Exactly. And leads us to believe that weight causes diabetes when in fact, there's not one study that shows causation between the two. Yeah, exactly. And it, again, just referencing body respect again, since I was just in there the other day. So one of the examples Linda gives in that book is, you know, a smoker who develops lung cancer. Smoker also has yellow teeth. But do we look at that and say like, oh, the yellow teeth is causing the lung cancer, you know, Yes, they both are in existence in the same person, but we're not saying like, oh, the yellow teeth is causing the lung cancer. But with weight, that's what we're doing. We're saying, oh, the weight is causing this. You know, we're not looking at the behaviors or the other potential determinants of that disease. Exactly. Another very recent example. So we're July 31st today. Over the last three weeks, we've been polluted about this whole obesity creates cancer. Oh, geez, yes. Have you been asked to comment on that or have you looked at that? I have not yet. That's the whole campaign, right? Yes. Like the, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, the government sort yep. of campaign, right? Oh, my gosh. And is it in the UK? Yeah, UK. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, again, what, what we're doing is we're taking science, right, that mm-hmm. doesn't state or affirm that obesity caused cancer. And then we spin it around marketing wise. Mm-hmm. And then we create a language that leads you to believe that obesity caused cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the way we market stuff. So want to bring that up to make sure yeah. that everyone understands that that's all marketing. Yeah. And then again, you look at that like that right there, like walking around and seeing like, obesity causes cancer like what does that do that brings shame and like stress and you're feeling like really badly and it's not empowering like it's not like you know how are people in larger bodies going to react to that like telling them that is not going even if it was true which it's not that's not going to make them be like okay well I'm going to go like change everything and like lose all this weight and and become healthier and so I, I think that's the really the the problem with a lot of these public health messages and these kind of like big sort of generalizations that that happen, these incorrect generalizations, is that all it really does is, you know, that's weight stigma and it creates more shame and it creates this feeling of hopelessness for a lot of people, you know, and that's what I love about health at every size is that it's all about empowering people of all sizes to, if they want to, you know, achieve health and work towards health promoting behaviors, like no matter what their size, you know, so these campaigns, not only are they like totally incorrect, but they're so stigmatizing. Before we move on from the weight stigma piece, I want to add another layer to weight stigma, which I'm sure you see in your client's population is internalized weight stigma. Meaning independent of what society tells you, what your doctor tells you, you walk around with thoughts in your head about your own weight. Mm -hmm. And that's called internalized weight stigma. You want to elaborate on that? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So it's that internalized, you know, fear of of being fat. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that I see with people of all sizes is we have this internalized weight stigma, this internalized fat phobia. You know, our culture prescribes this ideal that like fat is bad. And that, well, if I'm fat, then 
no one's going to like me or I'm never going to find love or I'm not going to be success. I mean, it's this whole, whole thing that is, is in our culture. So that gets embedded in us. I mean, that's what we are raised with in our society. I mean, it's baked into like the media, TV shows, movies, education, you know, everything. That's why we develop this internalized bias of our own, like towards our own self and, you know, this fear of, of being fat or becoming fat and this, this fat phobia. Yeah. And then we walk around with an unmanaged mind, meaning that we let our thoughts surface in our head about fat phobia. And then we create a lot of stress, not from the external environment, but strictly from how we think on a day to day basis. Right, right. And also, when we look at like, so many studies show that when people internalize this shame, they're far less likely to actually take steps to improve their health. They're much less active. And it's just this kind of like endlessly like negative spiral. So again, we talk about like, there's a lot of belief of like, oh, well, if we just tell them everything that they're fine the way they are, then they're not going to take any steps to improve their health. And what we actually see is the exact opposite. Because this like shaming and that cancer causes obesity or obesity causes cancer thing is like such an example of this, that shaming, they just internalize that shame and it's this like downward spiral. Yeah. And that's again, like when you say sort of walking around like day after day with these like negative thought patterns, that is also just this negative spiral and it doesn't empower them to actually, you know, take steps to improve their health. Yeah. And that's, again, that's like research based. We see that. And that's what the model you referred to a lot of times to health at every size. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Linda Bacon in her book, Body Respect, which I'll link to both in the show notes. But that approach to health, health at every size, is the answer to the whole, are you overweight BMI? So if that is not true, then health at every size approach in a weight neutral environment becomes the answer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So health at every size, and this was an approach developed by the Association for Size, Diversity and Health. And it talks about health is not just something that's simply the absence of disease. Rather, health is on this continuum. And it has five different principles. And the principles are weight inclusivity. So like you said, like weight neutrality or weight inclusivity, meaning that we accept and respect the inherent diversity of, of body shapes and sizes. And I know you said that you're going to be having another episode about set point. So that's going to go into like the inherent diversity, like this diversity of body shapes and sizes exists. And then it's about health enhancement. So supporting health practices, but not just practices, health policies. So this is when we kind of look at the macro level that improve and give you know more equal access to health services. One of the other principles is respectful care. So acknowledging, like we all have these biases towards people in larger bodies. So acknowledging these biases and then working to not let that impact our care and working to try to end the weight stigma or the weight discrimination. And then it really promotes eating for well-being. So eating in a way that's bait. And this is where, you know, my mind intuitive eating comes in. So eating in a flexible way, individual way. That's not focused on, you know, weight or diet, but that's focused on like making your body feel good <laughs> and then life enhancing movement. So similar to intuitive eating, like intuitive movement. So supporting, you know, physical activity for people of any size and abilities and to engage in, you know, enjoyable movement in a way that feels good to them. So really what it boils down to is that it is saying it's not you know, it often gets confused with healthy at every size. And that's not what it is. It's not saying that people of every size are healthy. What it's saying is that health at every size, that people, no matter what their weight, deserve to pursue health if they so want to. And that's very important. And that's a significant shift from and I refer to the weight neutral. And this is something that I think we didn't explain properly. But typical medical care that consider BMI being this designator of health is a weight centric approach to health, right? Yes. Where weight is at the center of your determinant of health and at the center of your treatment option, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, where weight inclusive weight neutral approach 
puts away the BMI and the weight and says, what else can we look at to help you live as long as we can and as healthy as we can? Did I get this right? Yeah, exactly. That was perfect explanation of it. And the research to back up this approach is the one that Alyssa referred to with Dr. Linda Bacon, which actually studied health at every size approach Mm -hmm. and found positive outcome of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's been a lot of research using the health at every size or weight inclusive approach compared to that weight centric or weight normative, we sometimes call it approach. And yeah, showing that those who were, you know, treated in a way that aligned with the health at every size approach and the weight inclusivity actually had more positive, like long term health markers. And again, we're looking, these are, you know, we call them biomarkers, like a physical health. But also when you look at often like mental health and like stress, anxiety, depression, like those things are looked at as well. And there is a positive association with when people were treated and using the health at every size paradigm. Yeah, there was a a study, we both study with Evelyn when it comes to intuitive eating. She shared a study recently, very small study of like 36 people in which body dissatisfaction, so internalized weight stigma actually showed an increase in cortisol hormone, which is the stress hormone in the body. So the thoughts of you being dissatisfied with your body actually drove up cortisol. Now, preliminary research, very small, but still it's an indication to what we see with all our clients. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. It's again like that. It's, you know, we, we tend to just like look at this outward projection, but really it's so important, like the self-talk that we're doing. And I think there's also, and it's a different study and let me make sure I'm going to get this right, but it was looking at people similar to this, but it was like just them believing and thinking that they were fat caused them to have, you know, more negative outcomes, Hmm. you know, versus people who didn't. And again, irrespective of size. So again, that speaks to just that internal dialogue and those internal beliefs and how big of an impact on the health just our thoughts can have. Yeah, and it goes into health at every size, which is a behavioral based approach to health. Mm -hmm. People who do have body dissatisfaction, thought internalized weight stigma have shown to have difficulty being consistent in healthy behavior. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that leads me to the last part of this interview. And I know you're working on a project on that, but we get all those pieces. We now understand that weight is not a BMI and we understand that health is all of those factors, but we are still having internalized weight stigma. We're still struggling with our body image. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's kind of the later piece to intuitive eating, right? Body respect and and engaging with our body differently. Any advice or thoughts you can share with us on that and how important it is to engage or to heal that part of our mind? Sure, sure. Yeah, so so body respect, you know, when I first started doing work with my clients in intuitive eating, typically we'd really focus on those like first couple principles and then like several months in start to talk more about you know, how they felt about their bodies. But then as I did more of this work, what I realized is that they have to go together. So it's like we are starting right at the beginning. And honestly, at this point now, much more of what we're doing in the front end is all about their self-talk and their body image and how they feel about their bodies and way less about, you know, because typically when people come to me, they're like, okay, I know dieting doesn't work, but I'm still feeling pulled to do it because of how I feel about my body. You know, and I think in the short run, what I try to tell people is like, can you move from, you know, trying to show less judgment and more self-compassion? And there's a lot of really amazing self-compassion research showing that people of higher levels of self-compassion, actually, they spiral up. So they treat themselves better and they have, you know, they're more likely to engage in positive health behaviors. So we really talk about instead of, you know, trying to change the way you're feeling, trying to make these thoughts go away or trying to be like, okay, I'm okay with my body because that's going to take a while to get to for a lot of people. In the short run, can you be like, okay, you know, this is how I'm feeling and just try to show some compassion for yourself because it, it is really hard to live in a body that our culture has told us should be different and needs to be different. So it's kind of, you know, just thinking about what can I do in this moment 
you know, to show myself some compassion. Hmm. It's funny, because in our program, the very first lesson in the academy, we have women write themselves a letter. And that I took that from Kristen Neff works, which is the expert mm. in self compassion to write a letter. Yeah, from your best friend's perspective, what she would say about your self sabotaging behavior, right? Mm-hmm. And eight out of 10 women have a hard time even conceptualizing having a self-compassionate discussion about their eating behavior with themselves. Like it's one of the, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah, totally. And I think, again, you know, a lot of that is certainly the internalized weight stigma. But I think also when we speak to sounds like you and I both work mostly with women, that's also something as women, like we try to take care of everybody else. We have, you know, when it comes to everything, right? A lot of people I work with would describe themselves as like a people pleaser and they just want to make other people happy. So yeah, I see the same thing where it's really hard for people to show themselves this self-compassion because they're so used to just like putting everything into other people and then having you know, just so much more like self judgment, Mm -hmm. and negative thought patterns. And, and I love that idea of like writing the letter from the perspective of a a best friend or like a loved one. And I often ask that too, like, well, what would, you know, if your friend was going through this right now, what would you say to her? And usually they're able to be like, oh, well, I'd tell her like, her body size doesn't matter. And I love her for who she is. And this doesn't change like who she is as a person. I was like, well, can you, can you start to say those things to yourself? Yeah, and they have a really hard time. Yes, because we're also brought up in a parental model that we punish ourselves. That's how we were raised, most of us. Yes. Right? That's how we were. And then not to say right or wrong or bad people, like that's how our parents were taught to parent kids. Yeah. And then we turn around and then we punish ourselves with negative thoughts about our body in hope that we're going to get better behavior. Yeah. And it doesn't work. Right. Right. Yeah. You're preparing a course on that. Am I correct? A program on that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working on a, so my, my first course that I put out last year was an intuitive eating crash course. So it's kind of like an intro to intuitive eating sort of meant to go along with the book and the workbook. And then, like I said, what I have found over the last year or two is that yes, that work is important. And a lot of that deals with kind of letting go of the diet mentality, recognizing the diet mentality and sort of the the beginning steps and getting back in touch with your own body cues and body signals. But what I'm hearing from my community of women is that, you know, I put out a call like, so what are you, what are you guys struggling with? What's the biggest problem? And like resounding was, yeah, body image, body acceptance, And, you know, most of them were like, okay, I've like let go of dieting. I'm not dieting. I'm letting myself eat what I want. But like, I am just so struggling with this piece still. So yeah, my, the course I'm working on is going to be encompass the working on body image and, but then also with that, like self care. So sort of what I consider some of those like higher levels of intuitive eating that come further down the line where it's about, you know, the specifically the gentle nutrition and the intuitive movement or joyful movement as a form of self care. So kind of working on those two pieces. Yeah, that's really important. Because there's kind of phases in intuitive eating, I'm sure you notice the same thing, people come in like the like, okay, I don't diet, I eat everything. And then they start not feeling good. And then they're like, yeah, but if I put rules again into my food, then I'm going to go back to dieting. So then what do I do? Yeah, this whole connection with the body and eating to feel better. That's the later phase of intuitive eating. So that's going to be a great tool for women. Yes, we only work with women here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for having been with us. We're yeah. going to put all the links for your website and your social media in the show notes. And thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. So thank you for having me. There you have it, sister. I have no exercise for you at the end of this one. This episode was more of a mental feeder. Let me explain that. In our journey of releasing diet culture and learning intuitive eating and body neutrality, we also have to learn new facts, new science for our brain. Because we have this old science and these old facts in our brain telling us, for example, that 
tenor is better, we need to give our brain new facts and new science to offset this old teaching. And this episode was really meant for that, is to give you new intellectual data point to help you form new beliefs, right? Now, data is necessary. Education, intellectual education is necessary, but you don't want too much. Because transformation, releasing body shaming, gaining confidence, becoming intuitive doesn't happen in what we call our left brain, our intellectual brain. It happens in our body. So do get some data, listen to this episode, but move forward to go back onto your journey of reconnecting with your body, with your innate hunger and fullness cue, and continue this journey of intuitive eating. Don't get stuck reading all of the books reading all of the blogs and listening to all of the podcasts. I see that too often. So I'm giving you a big caution here. A little bit of data, a lot of practice. 80-20 rule. So we have part four of the weight loss series coming up. Show 218. And this one, we're going to deep dive into weight stigma. And we have an expert a fellow health professional that lives, just like me, in a larger body. Her name is Kimmy Singh. She's a registered dietitian. And we're going to dive into all the world of weight stigma, the science behind it, and how we are now, even in the regular medical field, aware of the impact of body shaming on our health. Can't wait to do this with you. I love you, sister. Look forward to see you on the next episode.